Amplify Voices is not just the name of a podcast series. It's what we do as the broadcast vehicle for the Finger Lakes Youth Forum. The student contributors' stories and insights hold up a mirror for the region's communities to see how the past and current situations require fresh, inspired action to build a more equitable future. The experiences and stories you'll hear are as honest, compelling, and nuanced as each student. Taking control of their own narrative while remaining open to every point of view. Daring to discuss difficult topics and listening to each other informs actions to build an inclusive way forward. Welcome to Amplify Voices. In Episode 2, Divisiveness in the 2020 Election, we'll hear the Finger Lakes Youth Forum panel discussion led by the Corning Painted Post High School student leaders. The topics included different aspects of the 2020 election, voter fraud, the attack and insurrection on the Capitol, and how and why it all connects and matters to their lives. The students welcomed Professor Jim Twombly, who offered expert knowledge and historical perspective on several of the topics. Now let's listen to the panel discussion in Episode 2. Uh, Thank you. So before we start, what I want to establish first are a couple of ground rules, because I think one of the most important things, if not the most important thing about this forum, is that we want it to be a safe space for everybody involved. And some ways that we established in order to make that happen were to one, uh, use gender neutral language whenever possible. So if you're referring to someone and you don't know what pronouns they use, then you can just use they instead of he or she. And then also beyond uh, just pronouns before, if you're referring to someone in a relationship, or if you're asking about somebody's relationship, then you shouldn't assume that it is a, a heterosexual relationship. You can ask, uh, are you seeing someone or are you dating anybody? Instead of saying, do you have a boyfriend or girlfriend? And then the second thing is to listen, do not interrupt people. And the third thing is being honest about when you have a lack of understanding about a certain topic, because we like to discuss some pretty nuanced uh, topics and for everybody to uh, be on the same page about everything would definitely make it go a lot smoother. So there's no shame in admitting that you don't understand something. Anybody here would be glad to, uh, to clarify for you. And the last thing that we wanted to uh, emphasize is confidentiality. So pretty much what happens within the forum stays in the forum because we wanted this to be a space for students to talk about their issues and for those to be uh, disclosed to somebody who either wasn't part of the forum or just anyone who you wouldn't like to know, that wouldn't be good for the person who had the courage to share it. Ben and Olivia planned the uh, the talking points of this discussion, so um, I'd like to pass the baton to them. Thank you, Jossie. So I am a junior at Corning. Uh, that's kind of my introduction for today. Ben, you could go. I'm a senior at Corning. That's also kind of my introduction for today. So what we're going to be doing in this meeting is essentially we're going to go through three main things. We're going to talk about voter fraud. We're going to talk about the insurrection last week. And then we're going to talk about uh, the relevance of all of it to our community. And we're essentially going to structure this by just asking you guys questions and then allowing a conversation to happen. And then if we feel like that conversation is done, we'll just continue and ask more questions, kind of just talk about everything. Uh, So I think the way that we're going to begin with this is just by talking a little bit about voter fraud and getting some information from Jim Twombly, who's here. So Olivia, if you want to move on with that. 
Yeah. So um, Dr. Twombly, we didn't think we were very knowledgeable on the topic of voter fraud. So we prepared a few questions for you just so we could kind of get like a overall overview and like learn a bit more, obviously, starting off. Our first question for you, and also if you guys have any questions, feel free to drop them in the chat. So our first question was, what are the claims of voter fraud that have been used to discredit the 2020 election results? And just like how factual and truthful are these claims actually? Uh, There's a whole history of voter fraud in our country, and it ranges from the very simple minor infractions, sometimes that are even inadvertent, to, you know, what the claims of candidate Trump were, that it was, you know, voter fraud on a massive scale and the election was stolen. It's best if I go from the small to the large. Some of the simplest issues of voter fraud could be things like ballots or voter registration forms, perhaps, that weren't filled out correctly. And we're, we're going from the innocent to the guilty as well. So, so somebody makes an innocent mistake on their voter registration form, and it doesn't match an ID that they might bring to the polls. Someone who might want to criticize that action might put that in the category of voter fraud, indicating that the person did it intentionally. And it might not be. It might just be a simple mistake. There is also the possibility that you've heard claims perhaps in the 2020 election of thousands, if not millions of dead people voted. Now, there's a simple explanation for this in that if someone sent in an absentee or a mail-in ballot and then died, yes, they are dead when the actual vote was counted. And how that would be treated might vary from state to state, depending on state election law. Others might look to the more historic uh, interpretation of political machines in urban centers around the country where they, quote unquote, voted the cemeteries, where you would have the lieutenants in corrupt political machines like in uh, New York, the Tammany Hall machine, or in Chicago, the, the Cook County Democratic Committee, where they would actually go to cemeteries and take names off of headstones and register those individuals to vote and then have somebody else go vote with that person's name. That's a little bit harder to do today with the ability to check someone's actual identification, even at the point of them registering, especially if you start to see lots of registrations with the same address and you find out that it's a cemetery. That would be one of the first indications that somebody's trying to commit voter fraud. So that's sort of the history and and the, the minor ones. The other ones might be where there's systematic voter fraud, where it's not just a small few innocent occurrences but maybe some evil corporate empire is manipulating the software or the hardware in voting machines or vote tallying machines to switch votes. Or somebody has filled out ballots for people who chose not to vote, but they filled out those ballots and they're sitting in a box under a table and at three o'clock in the morning, they get dumped into the vote tally. That's sort of one of the allegations that candidate Trump was making during uh, during the campaign and afterwards. So that's the whole range of kinds of voter fraud activities uh, that can take place. Obviously, again, it varies on whether or not it's relatively innocent, somebody makes a mistake, to large-scale intentional manipulation of the vote outcome. Thank you. That was a very in-depth answer. Um, I really appreciate that. So kind of alongside that, have there been any previous claims of voter fraud in history, or is this kind of the first time we're seeing it on this large of a scale? It's not the first time. Okay. And it won't be the last. Probably the most famous one. I mean, I, I mentioned historically, urban political machines would you know, vote the cemeteries. There's also in, in 1960, which was a very close election, said that in 1960, if one vote, one voter per election precinct across the country had changed his or her vote, that Richard Nixon would have won the popular vote and John Kennedy would have lost the popular vote. So it was very, very close. 
And I mentioned the Cook County Democratic Machine, uh, which is the Chicago, uh, you know, the county in which the city of Chicago sits. They were known for doing rather corrupt things. Um, and the story goes that there were allegations made that Mayor Richard Daley, uh, you may recall if you read more current history that there was a Richard Daley who was involved with the Clinton administration. That's his son. There's no allegation that that Richard Daley was as corrupt as the father. But that Richard Daley, who was the mayor of Chicago and the chairman of the Cook County Democratic Committee, he may have taken voting machines from Republican-leaning districts in Cook County um, and had them dumped on the sh- on the bottom of Lake Michigan. And when asked afterwards, Richard Nixon was asked afterwards, why didn't you challenge the votes in Illinois, specifically in Chicago, because of these allegations of these voting machines being dumped in the lake? Nixon's response was supposedly, well, they'll probably find then that there's an equal number of voting machines on the floor of Lake Erie that uh, Kennedy would have won. In other words, the allegation was that whatever the Democrats had done in Chicago, Republicans had done in Ohio. Um, So there was no sense in filing that complaint because it would have been counterbalanced by a Democratic complaint against Ohio. So that's probably the most well-known, I wouldn't necessarily call it voter fraud, but certainly manipulation of the outcome by dumping votes. To varying degrees, political machines up until the 1960s or so uh, have been guilty or at least charged with manipulation of vote outcome. Again, there's always little incidents here and there that may affect the outcome in some small local races, but generally never anything of, um, of the scale that could affect the overall outcome of a, a presidential race, except perhaps 1960 because it was so close. So we're going to talk a little bit about mail-in voting because with the increase of mail-in voting, I know a lot of people um, have been saying um, because of mail-in voting, the election is less secure. So I don't know how much you would know about this, but do you know how secure is mail-in voting in comparison to in-person voting? Studies that have been done show that mail-in voting is at least as secure as in-person voting. Now, those studies are hampered by the fact that they've been done on a smaller sample of elections and a smaller number of mail-in votes. You know, a few states have used mail-in votes for 20 or 30 years, but we've never had mail-in voting on the scale that we had in the 2020 election because states were slow to adopt it. There are technological challenges and so forth. Uh, And one of the technological challenges is making sure that the ballots get to the right people. One of the questions that was raised in the 2020 campaign campaign was whether or not a voter should have had to have requested a mail-in ballot or if the state entity, whether it was the state board of elections or a local board of elections, could just mail out the mail-in ballots uh, to the voters. I would guess, this is just my professional uh, view of things, I guess, my viewpoint here, that probably just mailing out the ballots is a little less secure than asking voters to request it. Uh, The difference between the two is one is wide-scale mail-in voting versus uh, requesting a ballot, which is often referred to as expanded absentee ballot. The absentee ballot generally is you have to have some legitimate reason that you're not going to be in the jurisdiction where you would normally vote in order to get a ballot. One of the things that many states like New York did was they expanded the reasons for requesting an absentee ballot. You could just say fear of COVID as part of a larger category was one of the reasons why you didn't want to vote in person and thus you could then be legitimately granted an absentee ballot. States that did that came under less criticism than states that simply mailed out the ballots every registered voter was the large objection that the Trump campaign had to mail-in voting. I see the question in the chat. Um, I would say 
some of the complaint that the Trump campaign made that people might have been voting twice. But then toward the end, he actually had a couple of rallies suggested that they go make sure that their their mail-in ballot was actually counted by showing up to vote to see if they were denied the opportunity to vote. It's either a question of depending on the state rules. Again, this all varies from state to state because every state has a different set of election laws. Some states, it might be that if you show up to vote, they throw out your absentee ballot because they haven't counted it yet. Other states, they might say, well, we've pre-counted it, so you can't vote now. So again, it would vary on how states handle those uh, those mailed-in ballots. But certainly that was one of the allegations during the campaign that there might have been people who tried to vote twice, ironically, sometimes at the president's behest. Yes, thank you, Kate, for that really good question. Um, I was definitely wondering the same thing as well. So I think we're going, just with the interest of time, we're going to move a little bit to some discussion questions about voter fraud. But obviously, um, feel free to drop any questions you have for Dr. Twombly in the chat. Um, ben, I'll pass it over to you if you want to get started asking some of those. All right. So thank you so much, Professor. Um, so just a big overall question for everybody. How did, did you guys have any thoughts on the allegations of voter fraud in 2020? Uh, thoughts on its effect on the, the world in general, our country, uh, its legitimacy, uh, all of that? The claims just kind of like raised tensions more than there already were prior to the 2020 elections. And there was already tension between both parties and like a lot of people in the country in general. But I feel like as Trump sort of like started claiming voter fraud like more often and questioning the validity of the election, I feel like that kind of like made everything worse than it really was. I think that his attack on the security of the election, I think that was a contingency plan of his because he had started talking about how unsecure mail-in voting is since the summer. So I think I think that he knew that this election was not going to end well for him. So I think that this was just another way for him to try and stay in power a little bit longer. I think that it's also important to point out that as far as what you were saying, Mr. Twombly, that, um, or Professor Twombly, sorry, um, that that Trump in some cases was asking his, his own supporters to mail in votes and then go vote in person. In that case, it would help him. But in many other cases, the, the, the fear of COVID is more prevalent among the, the left-leaning side of, of voters. And so therefore, getting rid of mail-in ballots would kind of dampen his, his opposition. Some of the things Trump was doing were creating a lot of tensions. I think one of the tactics Trump used often was that he promoted the involvement of his supporters. He wouldn't exactly, I feel like, give them commands, but he would say to them that they could do this or they could do that. And he would talk about his supporters a lot in addition to talking about himself and his ideals. So I feel like promoted involvement of his supporters definitely um, helped what he was trying to do. So I think we're going to move on to our next question. And this one actually isn't related to voter fraud in general, just something interesting that I've seen a bit of discussion about. Should the overall voting age be lowered to 16 and why or why not? So I know there's many arguments around this. And I can share my personal opinion because I personally think that if you're old enough to operate a car, I feel like you probably should be able to vote. Also, I know that some people advocate for if you're under 18, you should take like a test to show like how much civic literacy you have. I think that's the term. You know, sometimes I feel like that might be barring people that don't have access to resources to like study for those tests. So that is one um, area of concern I have with that. So, yeah. 
I would say yes, that the voting age should be lowered to 16, but also along Olivia's point with education and independence in general. Like at 16, we're starting to get that independence and we're still figuring it out. I'm not sure how educated I was at 16 on politics. I think mostly just recently gotten into it. And so giving that right to a 16-year-old would be very empowering. But I also think maybe some sort of class or school discussion or something along those lines to like facilitate the growth of independence and education in those new voters would be helpful. I don't know if that's the right way to go about it, but I think it is important if you're working, if you're driving, if you're making all of these other decisions for yourself, I think you should be able to vote as well. Yeah, and I love the idea of uh, a uh, some sort of barrier for, for voting under 18. The, the problem with that is that I think it's a question you have to ask there, is that like, how are you going to get some sort of program like okay so you have to you have to pass these classes to get a driver's license but if you have to do that to get your civil rights as a voter at a certain age then the those rights are going to predominantly go to people who are of higher income and not go to people who are of lower income so you have to figure out a way to make sure that they're not just 16 year olds who are dumb and are voting on things that they're not aware of but you also can't restrict access to certain people because that'll just hurt people so it's, it's interesting also kind of what you touched on like I think it would be very easy for that test to be like based on parties and your opinions instead of just making sure that you could vote and you knew what you were voting for. Even if the test was like the citizenship test where it's just like, uh, how does the federal government work? How does local government work? It's still going to be hard to get that to kids who are, are poor in poorer communities who may lack the transportation to get to the places, may lack the time because they're working so, so many jobs or have strict parents, whatever, all those reasons, it's hard. So then are we going to cut off access to certain groups of people but allow this other group of people to vote? I don't know. Well, I think that the, the, the purpose of this test is to make sure that people are informed enough to be able to vote. And so if they're not able to pass the test, then I think the argument would be that they're not informed enough to vote. Um, in the in the case of not having access to the the classes in in like when, when you're getting the driver's license, you have to take the five hour course, and the five hour course is something separate that you have to you have to provide your own transportation to. But there is also driver education courses that take place through public education. By lowering the voting age, I don't think that you could do that by itself. I think that you would have to put a little bit of a change into the public school system and so that the public school system itself prepares you for the driver's test and therefore everybody would have the same influx of information. Another point that I was thinking of earlier was there's going to be a perspective change. And I remember when I was 15, I, I thought to myself, why is the driving age so high? I could operate a car right now, and I'm sure I could. And then I turned 16 and I started driving a car. And now I am definitely sure that I would not have been able to do that at 15. And so the, despite the fact that I was so sure of it before, actually getting into it and actually having having to work with the car and having to um, study for the driver's test and all, the, all those sorts of things, it makes sense to me why the driver's age was 16, which I'm not saying that it's necessarily correct. I'm just saying that, that we as 17-year-olds and below don't really have too much of, uh, um, we haven't had that perspective shift on the other side of the voting age yet. So we don't really know what could lie on that side. 
to build off of, I guess, uh, what Kate said, both about there being a change within the public school system and the point that she was talking about just recently. I was just having a discussion like this in my English class, but it was about homework, but it's still, it's the same concept. Like the this change also has to come with a series of uh, changes so that there's not, so that we're not widening a socioeconomic gap. I definitely agree that there should be more uh, education within the public school system on uh, civic duties. And also, um, I think that within that course of education, you could prepare students by actually having them like, vote for decisions just within the classroom, and that they could see all the, the outcomes that they would have, that, and they could experience them uh, just to get a feel of what weight your vote actually carries. Because like what Kate was saying, that she could drive when she was uh, 15, and then uh, now she said that she was sure that she couldn't do it uh, when she was 15. So I think that if we give uh, students experience on what voting is like and what impact it can have, then we definitely could lower the, the voting age effectively. Yeah, and I think that could definitely be incorporated in school curriculum somehow, because I think that in my classes, definitely right now, um, like someone will bring up a current event just kind of to like talk about the current event, like especially in history class. But um, I know my history teacher sometimes gets like complaints from parents saying don't get political at school. And I'm like, well, sometimes it's not about getting political. I think it's just kind of talking about a literal current event. So I think that there's like importance in being educated on civil current issues. And I think that a lot of times, especially right now, people are treading very like lightly um, around politics. So I'm like, maybe we should be doing the opposite and actually educating people on current issues. And also, Jassy, I liked your comment on socioeconomic divide, because like right now I'm learning how to drive. Um, and I was thinking all the every single time I go out and practice with my mom, I'm always thinking like, it must be so difficult for people who have like, um, bad relationships with their parents or stuff like that. Like they probably can't even go and like get their permit. Just these tiny things that I really take for granted are just like not available for other people and definitely living where we are. Like there's really not that much public transportation. So it's like, if I I couldn't drive somewhere. Um, there's no way to really get anywhere. Um, and that kind of goes into a paradox because if I had abusive parents, like I couldn't drive anywhere to escape them. So I, that is just something I was thinking about with like socioeconomic divide um, and in our area as well. Yeah, that's my that's my main problem with the whole idea of voting under 16, because driving is important. It's not a civil right. Like you can people can learn to drive at some point. It's not something the government should be expected to provide to people. But voting is definitely a civil right. And it's something that all people should equally have the opportunity to do at some point. And I think past 18, you you really do. It's pretty easy to sign up and then you can just vote. But if you have to take a class, if you have to go through some process, then you're instantly not allowing a certain group of people to vote for, for some reason. And you're allowing this other group of people who can go through this process in any way to vote. And so you're disenfranchising a certain group of people and you're enfranchising another group of people. So I just don't think it works. Also, as an 18-year-old, I don't know. I think 18 is like a good age for people to be allowed to vote. Yeah, I think it's a good transition period. I think people should have to wait until then. Uh, it lets you learn a little bit more about the world and yourself. We'll be right back with more of episode two after this. To join the forum panel discussions and to add your voice to the inclusive narrative, you can connect and follow us on Instagram at FL Youth Forum. The Youth Forum is sponsored by Dr. Millicent Ruffin, Director, Community Affairs Office, Corning Incorporated. 
and Katie McConville, Scholarships in Youth Philanthropy, Community Foundation of Elmira Corning, and The Finger Lakes Incorporated. And now back to the panel discussion. Yeah, to answer the, the question in the chat, Dr. Ruffin was asking, should local government provide transportation to the polls. I think this opens up government involvement, or local government involvement, I should say, accessibility to voting. I think the answer to this question is similar to the last in that that change can't come without other changes to go along with it. So yeah, I definitely think that uh, local government should provide transportation, but among other things, just making sure that everybody's got a polling place within within a certain radius. Because I don't know, I don't know if all of you saw, but um, there were NBA arenas that were being converted into polling places there just to make voting more accessible. So that wouldn't be necessary if there were just more polling places within communities. Yeah, and uh, in going off of what Jossie said, I think that like in a lot of like in certain areas where there is a low socioeconomic status and it's in the and that area is mainly filled with minorities. I do think that the inability to easily get to the polls definitely like plays a large factor in the decisions that are made. I would say like like not only in that area, but also it definitely adds up on like a national level. Voter suppression is definitely like a really big thing. And there's a lot of different forms of voter suppression. So I feel like trying to make things more accessible for voters by like providing transportation to and from the polls or creating more areas where people can go to vote, I think that'll make that voter suppression less prominent in those areas. And I think that it'll just allow for people to feel more empowered because they feel that trying to make change or make a difference or even just like participate in something that is sometimes taken for granted by people who aren't really suppressed like voter-wise. Also really quickly, I think another solution might be just more mail-in ballots. I don't know if that would be more or less accessible for people, but it would probably be less expensive for the local government itself to provide mail than transportation. I think a a big part of like people that are, are barred from being able to get their right to vote is that uh, a lot of people have to like work on that day or they have to do something else is it's hard for working class people to have the same access to ballots on any voting day as compared to people who may not have to like go to a job every day or whatever but i've always thought that that voting day should also be like a national holiday uh as well as mail-in ballots i i don't know that just has it's always baffled me how that's not a thing actually i've never really thought of that that's a great point we could also do it on i'm not sure if this would be considered that there would probably be some pushback on putting voting on an already national holiday like if you put it on columbus day or something like that just change columbus day to voting day I think with the last little bit we have left, we can move on to talking about just general thoughts they want to share about the protest at the Capitol, the insurrection, whatever you want to call it. Before I start, it was just messy. It was very much so messy. I would say, like, for me, the biggest thing that, like, really stood out, and, like, I wouldn't call it, like, an eye-opener, but, like, just seeing thousands of white people storming the Capitol, destroying things, stealing national artifacts... Uh, like in law enforcement is basically like nowhere to be found. 
and there was no pushback from law enforcement. Yes, there was some pushback, but it was minimal. If we go back to like last summer in 2020 and we look at all of the Black Lives Matter protests that were happening all over the country. It's just so interesting to see like how those protests, they were always starting out peaceful. And like, yes, there was some violence. We can't ignore that. But it's also like these people were there to protest peacefully and march in the streets. But yet there was hundreds of police officers in these areas just protecting places from like rioting and everything. But then it also really comes down to, okay, well, all of these police officers and National Guard was ordered in and called in to stop people from all walks of life just fighting for basic civil rights for me personally like i just think that was like another moment for me just to like sit back and really think about like how much white privilege really exists in this country how much that like not only like i'm affected as a as a black male but also like just how other minorities are impacted by the racial disparities within this country and also like i don't know like there's just like so much to say but like yeah that's that's my hot take yeah, Nick brought up uh, a lot of really good points. To continue off of that, I think what I thought about it, um, it was one of the biggest displays of hypocrisy that I've ever seen. Because, well, I don't know if all of you saw, but there was not only were uh, police officers at the Capitol, uh, they were seen taking selfies with the, uh, with the insurrectionists, uh, but the, also those same people, they were holding uh, Blue Lives Matter flags, but also fighting the police. And also one of them, apparently one of them died by being beat to death with a fire extinguisher. If you ever had any confusion that Blue Lives Matter was nothing but a really just a nothing response to Black Lives Matter, there is there's that confirmation. I mean, these people... I don't even understand uh, what your thought process is there when you're going, when you're bringing that symbol of solidarity with the police and then you go and then you treat them like that after, after all you've said to defend them. Yeah. Uh, so I don't want to like disparage the, uh, the efforts of the actual police officers at the Capitol to, to stop the protesters. Cause there was a lot of really good men and women trying really, really hard. And there was just a lot of people there, but I think the things that I saw there that were the most horrifying and interesting, if there was black lives matter protesters there, there would have been a much wider and, and more accepted use of lethal force and enforce in general it seemed like a lot of the officers there were incredibly afraid to uh use force with these people and i think it's an aggressiveness thing on the 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 case of the people who are there and it's also a racial thing where the police officers knew that they would have to face harsher consequences for hurting anybody there and i think they know that they won't have to face those consequences hurting people at, at blm protests or whatever also, just the, and, and there was really hardworking people there, Eugene Goodman, all the, the, the police officers who died. There's a lot of videos of police officers just getting overwhelmed and, and scared and not knowing what to do. But I think the thing that disgusted me was the federal response, right? The National Guard didn't come in. And there were people talking on very public message boards for weeks in advance about how they were going to do this and when they were going to do this. It felt like a failure. Also, Ben, going off of what you're saying, they had they had weeks and weeks to plan this. Um, and so so not being prepared isn't really an excuse for how understaffed the, the police officers were. Um, and, and they had they had police officers going on breaks and, and um, taking taking vacation days and that sort of thing. And I, I watched a couple of interviews with like the, the chief of police and superiors talking about how understaffed they had been that day. 
Um, but also, if you take a look at the pictures from the Black Lives Matter protests, the, the police officers are literally elbow to elbow with plexiglass shields on the steps of the Capitol, several rows of them. It's really interesting to me to see how we've known that this was going to happen for well over a month. Um, and the planning for the Black Lives Matter protest that came to the Capitol was planned for well under a month. And, and the fact that you, you can't use a chain of command or, 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 have, or not being prepared as an excuse for being understaffed that day because they did it so securely six months ago. And it's just a matter of the demographic that was, that was protesting there. I feel like irony has a big part of the situation because back when the Black Lives Matter protests were really significant, a lot of people were saying like, well, it would be the same law enforcement response if it was any other kind of protest or if it was like any other community or any other kind of issue. But here it was, like Nick said, here is like the white people and all the Trump supporters storming the Capitol and being really a lot more destructive. The Black Lives Matter protests were mainly peaceful. And I just feel like that's a huge thing with irony. Didn't really mean what they said back when the Black Lives Matter protests were happening. Yeah, to go along with what Marcus said, uh, those same people at the Capitol, they were doing the same thing back in, I think it was May, when everything was being shut down because of uh, COVID and there were mask mandates and stuff. They were those same people who were armed with semi-automatic rifles, went and stormed government buildings, and they essentially reacted the same way with any police officers who opposed them. They had such disregard for any of their Blue Lives Matter narrative that they were pushing any other time uh, Black Lives Matter was, uh, was trending. So after this whole thing, what do you kind of hope to see happen in the aftermath of this uh, on, on whatever level to Donald Trump, to the people who went there? What do you think, how do we like heal from the whole insurrection uh, what has to happen? What should we do? I know this sounds like kind of bad. Like what happened isn't really something that you can heal from. It was something so profound and it was just something that was like never seen before. And like the way that it started incited by Trump and like how his supporters, like they're kind of like puppets. They just kind of do like whatever he says. Him just saying, we're going to march up there and we're going to like show them who's boss, like and yada, 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 this and that. You can't really heal from that. The only thing you can like really do to sort of like bounce back is just like take it as like a learning experience and think about, okay, this happened. Yeah, it sucks that this happened, but what can we do now to discourage something like this from ever happening again? What also needs to be done to ensure that no one who like can be put in charge again, who can just do things like that are just crazy and just, just cause so much harm and violence. Uh, I think that the healing process, just to start to it, could be removing people who were pushing Trump's narrative of the election being stolen. Because, I mean, that's literally what the, the, the cause of the riot at the Capitol was. So just making sure that anybody who wants to interfere with the democratic process is no longer allowed to hold any political power because now that we've seen the result of what happens, there's no reason for it to happen again. In this protest itself, in a symbolic sense, it was it was a very jarring event. In the actual impact that it had on the democratic process, it was very minimal. If 
anything at all. There, it didn't have a big political effect. There was a representation of the mob mentality and the cult mentality when they were they were taking the American flags off and throwing them on the ground and putting up Trump flags and that sort of thing. And yes, that is symbolically jarring. And it, it's a very scary thing to think about. But there's been no leader here. Trump is the leader of this party. Trump's going to be gone. Trump is still going to be gone. Trump is suffering consequences for what has happened here. I don't think that the impact is only on the democratic process because I, th I think that what Trump did by constantly refuting the election results, I think what it did was bring up a lot of people who were, um, I guess, silent you know, in their, in their white supremacy, because there were multiple uh, people wearing Nazi shirts, Nazi symbols at the, uh, at the riot at the Capitol. So I think that like the, there's definitely a lot of uh, healing within that department that needs to be done. Because if we have not literal Nazis supporting Trump and fighting for him to stay in power, then there is 100% work that needs to be done to ensure that there aren't any more politicians who appeal to these Nazis and white supremacists. Yeah, so I think uh, uh, the thing that we're talking about is essentially like consequences for 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 donald trump right where we're trying to figure out how do we stop something like this where there's nazis white supremacists and uh it's the first time two enemy flags have been flown in the capitol hill how do we stop it from happening and i think the first thing we're turning to right now is impeachment right that's that happened today so do you guys think that impeachment was a good decision like should it have happened was it a good idea I think the biggest thing about the impeachment is just sort of that it sent like whether it was super just like important it sends the message that like this behavior is unacceptable and that you can't just go around doing that with no repercussions you know what I mean and I just think that's just the most important thing is just sort of getting that word out there like that's not allowed. And not only would impeachment remove the current threat, but it would also, I'd like to think that it would also prevent any other president, any future presidents from modeling themselves after that behavior. We know what happens when you do Trump-like things because we've seen him do them and see the results of them for four years. So I think that it should be an easy removal from office if this impeachment goes through and it's no longer acceptable to do these things. I'll start with my question. So how long does impeachment take and how quickly can it happen? If it was done the fastest it could be done. It is entirely possible by next Friday on the fastest possible track that Donald Trump could be convicted. At that point, removal from office would be a moot point because he'd no longer be president. But once convicted by a simple majority vote, the Senate then could impose another penalty, which is banning him from ever serving in a federal office again for the rest of his life. If impeachment can happen quickly, then I think that they should go through with impeachment because it's like a logical and orderly process to repair or at least start to repair the damage that's been done. But then I also think that if impeachment takes too long and drags out for months, then it might just be harmful and cause division. See, there's a question from Nick. What is or are the biggest differences between the 25th Amendment and the impeachment process? The 25th Amendment does not require any kind of quote-unquote wrongdoing by the president. It would simply be a judgment on the part of a majority of the cabinet and the vice president that the president is no longer capable of carrying out, in this case, his duties. 
the president would no longer have the duties and powers of president. He would still be the president, but he would no longer be able to issue pardons, direct the military, or do any of that. That would all fall on Mike Pence as acting president. The 25th Amendment is a quick uh, way of removing a president from uh, being able to exercise his, his duties and powers. It has been invoked. There's several parts to the 25th Amendment. A president can self-invoke. A president can say, hey, I'm going to go have surgery, and I'm going to be unconscious for four hours. So uh, during that time, uh, the vice president shall act as acting president. So the 25th Amendment is quicker in, in many ways, but there's a uh, constitutional question as to whether or not it can be used for any reason other than a, a, a clear physical disability. 25th Amendment says, if the president dies or resigns, the vice president shall become president. Prior to that, the Constitution simply said, the duties and powers of the president shall devolve onto the vice president. That's the 25th Amendment. It doesn't remove the president. It simply strips him of his powers temporarily. So the impeachment process once impeached and then convicted on those charges, the president's gone, no longer president of the United States. So that's the big difference. In the case of tweets, um, would would that be considered circumstantial evidence? If it's sent through his account, like Trump was also tweeting through Melania's account after his account got banned. So like if Melania were to get brought up on charges for, for something completely unrelated and her Twitter account was used as evidence, the, the tweets that Trump had tweeted through her account, those could potentially be used against her based on the fact that they were from her account. So how much weight does um, having tweets um, from the president bear on his trial? They used tweets in the previous impeachment as well. The Trump administration has said that any tweets that went out under either the at POTUS account or the at real Donald Trump were the official statements of the president. So those tweets are admissible as evidence then as the official um, statements of the president. The standard of evidence is a lot more loosey-goosey than it would be in a criminal trial, but certainly there could be a criminal trial after the fact, and, they'll, and they will be much more meticulous and drawn out uh, than an impeachment trial would be. The other punishment that would come along with this, even though you can't remove him from office because he's already gone, he would lose all of his government retirement and all of the other benefits that he gets as an ex-president. No travel allowance, no staff. I don't think there'd be Secret Service protection and his, uh, his office expense account and his government retirement account gone. So I have a question for you, Dr. Twombly. I read this article from the New York Times, and then it was about how Donald Trump, like he wanted to pardon himself. Would that be possible? And like, how would he go about that if he were serious about it? There's two legal arguments. One is presidential pardon power is not limited in any way. It's a uh, broadly granted power in the Constitution and there are no restrictions on it. Therefore, he could pardon anyone he wants including himself. That's one argument. The other argument is, it's got two parts. One, no person is above the law, including the president of the United States, which means if you go to it, it's the, the phrasing of that part of the constitution says, the president shall grant pardons. And the legal argument is that you can't grant something to yourself. So it's sort of a, a two-pronged argument that A, you're not above the law, and B, you can't grant something to yourself. And there are some actually who, who think that this would be a good thing if Trump tried to, tried to pardon himself, that their view is the Supreme Court would strike it down and then we'd have a clear understanding of what the limits on the pardon power are going forward. That's what the Supreme Court is there for. Where the Constitution sort of left something hanging, the Supreme Court is supposed to say, yeah, well, this is what it means and this is how far it can go. 
Well, okay. Thank you so much. I really appreciated everyone being here. And I know Ben can probably relate to this. He can relate to this sentiment. A special thanks to Dr. Twombly for um, taking the time out of his day to come and educate us. I definitely learned a lot about um, what's like possible in the next coming weeks, definitely, um, that I didn't know before. Just want to say thank you all for having me here. It's been a pleasure. It's been a great conversation. Well, thanks everyone. Um, the discussion this evening, it, it's been outstanding. Thanks especially to Olivia and Ben for the preparation going into tonight and, and to everyone for attending. If there are topics that you would like to see or participate in um, going forward, reach out to Ben, Olivia, Nick, or Jossie. We'd like to thank our student leaders and listeners. This podcast is for everyone in the region. We hope you join the movement and make your voices heard. The courage and honesty the students bring to this powerful episode reveal profound implications from the discussion and topics. How to choose love, not hate. How the residual fear of the impact and consequences connect the dots from a faceless mob's astonishing violence in the people's house to their own hometown. What will it take to heal such divisiveness? I'm Sissy Sierro, your host for the podcast series. Please join us next time when the student leaders explore new topics in Episode 3.